For that, we can all say what? Amen. Amen. <laughs> Good morning. I'm Sonny Flowers, one of the pastors here at River Oaks. And if you're visiting with us for the first time this morning, we'd like to welcome you, whether you're here in person or online. If you're here this morning, after the service, please join us in the coffee bar for some coffee so we can greet you properly. I want to start this morning uh, praying for Jerry Drummond's uh, family. Y'all probably got an email that Jerry passed away uh, this week, and the service is going to be here October the 2nd at 11 o'clock, so be praying for Chris. We've had other people in our congregation, Paul Canode, uh, Brett Canode's father passed, and so it's just a, it's a very hard time when we lose people that we love and people that mean so much to us. So let's pray this morning, pray for them and for our time together. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, the name above every name, and Lord, we ask God for your comforting presence, Lord, in Chris Drummond and Jerry's family, Lord, in his loss, and for Paul Canode's family, Lord, that you would just give them a sense of your presence and nearness, turn their mourning, Lord, into gladness, knowing that their loved ones is with you. Lord, help us, Lord, to uh, lift them up daily and encourage them. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time uh, this morning to open your word. And so, Lord, be with us now, and we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we're beginning part two of our Roman study, which we, we started back in the spring of the year, part one. If you wasn't here for part one and, or you want to review part one, you can do a couple of things. You can go on the website and watch 13 sermons. You don't want to do that? Or you can go watch David Holcomb's 20-minute recap of reboot of Romans 1 to kind of catch up. So you get to pick which one you'd like to do. <laughs> This morning, I want to begin with a little brief historical overview of the church um, in Rome of which Paul was addressing in his letter. You see, when the gospel reached Rome, believers began meeting in house churches much like they did in Jerusalem. But these house churches were comprised mostly of both Jewish, they were Jewish and Gentile believers. Um, the predominant leadership, though, in those churches in Rome were Jewish in nature. And during this time, we know that gr some great conflicts broke out in Rome between the followers of Judaism and these new Jewish believers in Jesus. They had many public disagreements in the streets, and finally it came to a boiling point, and the emperor of Rome had had enough. Claudius in A.D. 49 had an edict, and he kicked all the Jews out of Rome, Christian Jews and Jews of Judaism, all of them out. And when this happened, it left all these house churches without leadership because most of them were Jewish. And so these remaining Gentiles had to step up and fill these positions. And they quickly, they quickly re reorganized themselves to reach the people of, of Rome. The gospel was preached and the number of Gentiles increased greatly in the church in Rome. And then about six years later, the edict was over, and the emperor said, y'all can come back. And 
all the Jews, not all the Jews came back, but when, the ones that did, those Jewish Christians, when they came back to Rome, they found the church they had left, well, they had changed. Not only that they were all full of Gentiles and no Jews, but something else. Their Jewish traditions had vanished from the church. The Jewish Christians were in this awkward situation of trying to be assembled into a church that felt rather foreign to them. <laughs> you see, before this, the Jewish people, the Gentiles, had to adapt to Jewish customs, and now the Jewish people had to adapt to Gentile customs. And as you can imagine, there were some conflicts that emerged in the churches over this. They were talking about, well, who's really the leaders now in the church? And where's all the Jewish traditions and customs? Where are they at? So it caused some tensions. Now, this is the setting of which Paul was writing to in Rome. Paul's main teaching here in Romans 10 is focused on the contrast between the righteousness by the law versus the righteousness by faith. While the Gentile believers, they were embracing their righteousness by faith, a lot of these Jewish people, these Jewish believers, they struggled because of their Jewish heritage, their traditions and belief they had as in their childhood, was missing from the church. Now, as I was going over this and pondering this, a story of a man I knew for many years came to mind, and I'd like to share his journey with you to help illustrate maybe how they felt. Let's call him Jim. Jim was from a small mill town in the Sand Hills of North Carolina. He grew up in a family of very devoted believers with a long history of ministry in the church. His father was the choir director, and his grandfather was a powerful preacher and a man of prayer. Jim once told me how his grandfather was very, very, he was not educated at all. He could barely read a newspaper. But when he got in the pulpit and started preaching, every word in the Bible he could read, it was supernatural, and he saw that. That's the environment that he grew up in. He attended church faithfully with his family over the years. And every time, he said, every time he stepped in the doors of the church, he could feel God's presence and his power. He accepted Jesus at an early age, but he grew up in a home that was really steeped in this strict tradition, had very strict rules con concerning life and faith, maybe what some would call legalistic. And this would shape his belief in God for many years to come. Would well, Jim... After a while, he served in the Navy, and he came back, and he got married and had some kids. And this little small mill town really wasn't a good place for a young father of kids to really do well for his family. So he decided to pack up and move and seek a better life for them. That's a good thing. We all want better for our families. 
Then after many years of him leaving the mill town and traveling, he finally landed in Winston-Salem and began a construction company and started to realize the American dream. And his newfound wealth occupied his time and attention. Jim and his family, well, they stopped going to church. And a downward spiral in his life and his faith began to unfold. Now, while he enjoyed the good life and all the things that wealth can bring, his faith suffered, and he spent over 20 years away from the church and away from the faith of his childhood. And then God, as time he, he does at times, he sent a wake-up call for Jim. Remember, he did that for Jonah. He does that for us. See, Jim suffered a heart attack. And as a result of that, he had to have heart surgery. And while in the hospital recovering, the Lord did some heart surgery on him as well. He left the hospital a new man physically and spiritually. He began attending church again, digging into God's word. And, but something wasn't right. When he looked around in the church that he had left 25 years ago, it didn't seem to be operating in the same faith of his childhood. See, that call to holiness and the strict call to walk closer to the Lord had changed in his eyes. Kind of compared to what maybe the Jewish believers felt in Rome, that the church had become unrecognizable to them. Thus began this journey of Jim searching for the right church looking for that strict faith of his childhood. And as he went, he found a church that was very unorthodox. This church taught Jim that he needed to live by the Old Testament laws of the Torah to keep the laws, all the laws, to eat certain foods, uh, to dress a certain way, and keep the Sabbath down to the minute. And he began to do this with great zeal, just like some of the Jews we find in Roman. See, he was seeking a faith based upon works or the law. And I had many conversations with Jim about the fact that he couldn't keep the law perfectly, did not face his zeal, did not face it, or his resolve to keep the law the best that he could. But see, Jim was misguided in doing this. By doing that, he's nullifying the truth of the gospel. He told me all he really wanted to do was be as close to God and earn as much favor as he could. And he felt like he could only do that by doing the things of the Old Testament laws. The good news is, Near the end of Jim's life, the Holy Spirit opened his eyes, revealing the correct knowledge about the truth of his relationship with Jesus. Today he's in heaven and he's enjoying that closeness that he was always seeking. See, what we find in Romans chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, is on the screen overhead. We see Paul's heart and his desire and prayer for his own people. He acknowledges that they had a zeal for God. However, it was according, not according to knowledge. See, this passage has always been really 
really personal to me, and I understand it. You see, Jim, the man in this story I just shared, well, he was my father. And he fell into that because he was looking for something that was missing. I remember so many times praying for him that God would show him the truth of his salvation. He had a great zeal for God. In fact, sometimes I was jealous of it. But it wasn't according to the right knowledge. He became blinded by these misconceptions concerning the righteousness that we get from God. And this morning I want to cover three misconceptions that even the people back that Paul was speaking to in Romans and us today, we can fall into and miss the truth. So this is kind of truth from error. There are these things. We can, there's misconceptions about our relationship with God through our traditions and good works and law-keeping. The first misconception is this, that our righteousness is based upon our traditions. Now, I realize that not all traditions are bad. Every family has them, and they celebrate them differently. I remember a co-worker telling me about that when she was a little girl at every Thanksgiving meal, every, everyone would gather around and they would take turns talking about what they're thankful for. And it carried on into her, her adulthood. And when she had a, kids and families, they still do that. And even today when her kids are grown, they still do that. So it's a good thing. However, not all traditions are good. For instance, in Africa, and I've seen this firsthand, the, the traditions in family have resulted in some really unstable systems in the family. The tra traditionally, the women do all the work, all the housework. They go get the firewood. They do all the work and the raising of the children. And in many cases, the men are absent from the house, both physically and spiritually. The boys grow up with no role models, how to be a, a godly father, and the young women struggle to find their value as a woman and mothers. And it's a tradition that has been passed down from generation to generation, unfortunately has led to many of them living harmful lifestyles. Maybe it's like, remember Hank Williams' old song years ago? It goes like this, Hank, why do you drink and why do you smoke and why do you live out the songs that you wrote? What does he say? It's a family tradition. <laughs> you see, traditions, good or bad, passed down through the generations, they can be very hard to break. Family traditions is one thing. However, when it comes to the gospel, the traditions of man must be filtered through God's word. Jesus said in Mark 7, 13, the traditions of man nullify the gospel. The Jewish people, especially the Pharisees, had a great zeal for God based on their traditions. But see, when Jesus came... It was a new dawn of God's redemptive history, and they rejected that. Their traditions was nullifying the gospel. And we see this in verse 2 when it says their zeal was not according to knowledge. Well, what knowledge is Paul talking about there? He's talking about the knowledge of the gospel and how we receive 
righteousness from God. How we're made right with him. So today our traditions must never nullify the word of God. See, some of our convictions that we hold dearly may be derived more from our Christian traditions than Scripture. And we need to learn to discern the differences. It's okay to have traditions and convictions just like my dad did, but we've got to be careful that we don't elevate them to the authority of Scripture. We've got to be careful that we don't become modern-day Pharisees also with a zeal for God, but not according to the knowledge, as Andrew talked about some weeks back about looking at those people. The next misconception is our righteousness from God is based upon good works. You know, when I've shared the gospel with people so many times over the years, I always ask them a question because I want to find out what they're putting their trust in. And I ask them, why should God let you into his perfect heaven? And this is the common answers I've, I get. I, people say, well, I live by the Ten Commandments. I'm a good moral person. I help people. or oh, I serve downtown in the food pantry every week. And all these are good in themselves. However, the common denominator in all those is focused on what we do and not what God does. And I believe obtaining righteousness by works is a misconception that a lot of people still hold today. It certainly wasn't my dad and his faith journey. Romans 10, 3, Paul addresses the Jewish people concerning their seeking righteousness from God by the works of the law. Look at here on Romans 10, 3. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own. They're trying to do it in their own self with what they do. Paul has already said in chapters 3, if you go back to Romans part 1, chapter 3 and 10 through 12, it says, no one is righteous, not even one. No matter how hard we try, no matter what we do, we fall short to the glory of God because we are sinners. And now in Romans 10, Paul is speaking to Jews and all believers that, our, that a work-based righteousness is really nothing more than a religion of self-righteousness that believes that our salvation must be earned or it must be sustained by good works. It's not true. It's not true. I love this quote by John Calvin. He says, we shall never be clothed with the righteousness of Christ except we first know assuredly that we have no righteousness of our own. Someone once said that Christ has charged himself with the doing and he has left us only with the believing. Did you hear that? He does all the doing. He's left us to the believing. We can never earn our favor with God by our works. The third misconception is this. Our righteousness from God is based upon law keeping. So let me ask everybody here a question. Do you keep the speed limit perfectly? 
all the time. I'm not talking about a little bit under or a little bit over. I mean, but on the dot, all the time, perfectly. Anybody want to raise their hand? No, because nobody can say that. It's the same, the same is true with the Old Testament laws. No one has ever, ever, ever kept them perfectly except one person, and that's the person of Jesus Christ. He's the only one that was able to do that because he's God. I remember asking my dad if he kept all the laws perfectly, and he said, well, no, of course not. But he went on to say, but I can please God with the ones that I do keep. I'm like, well, 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 wait a minute. The Bible says, for whoever keeps the whole law in James 2.10, but fails at one, is guilty of all of it. Perfection. We're sinners. It's not going to happen. And my dad, like the Jewish leaders, had taken, see, they took selected ones they could follow, and they made the rest of it into a religion of self-righteousness and legalism. See, the original intent of the law was given to us to make known that we're sinners and highlight our need for a Savior. It served as a guardian for us until Jesus came that we might be prepared for our Savior. It was also given to protect God's people and give them a guide to live by. It was never intended for our salvation or our righteousness from God. It served a purpose. In Romans 4.10, Paul writes that Jesus is the end of the law for righteousness. Now, I know certainly the Jewish, especially the Jewish leaders, did not like this verse. But see, what Paul says here is the end of the law for righteousness in Jesus. The Greek word for end here is telos, and it has several meanings one is a termination or the end of something. It is a close or end to which all things relate or finally a goal or aim or purpose. This is highly debated by commentators, but most agree that the meaning of this word end has to do with this. It means that the law has reached the intended purpose with the coming of Jesus. We are no longer under the law, rather we're under the lordship of Jesus who brings a new covenant in his blood. And this covenant is the promise from God that he will forgive our sins and he's, he will impute his righteousness, his holiness to us. And the wonderful news is that it's for everyone who believes that God draws by faith. Jesus is the mediator of this covenant. The promise comes from his death and resurrection on the cross. And unfortunately, a lot of the Jewish people in Romans that Paul was speaking to, they missed it. Don't miss it, guys. Don't miss this. Even the Old Testament and the prophets foretold of the coming Messiah. And the new covenant, Jeremiah the prophet Jeremiah wrote in 31:33, For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. That was written in the Old Testament. is a promise. And then some people read 
this verse and they say, well, I'm a New Testament believer. I, I don't have nothing to do with the law. It doesn't affect me anymore. I'm not under it. The only problem is um, it's not what Jesus said. <laughs> Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17 through 18, I didn't come to abolish the law. See, he didn't. He came to fulfill it perfectly because we are unable as humans because we're all sinners. The Ten Commandments were given by God to help us live a godly life and to reveal sin to us. Paul writes in Romans seven twelve that the law is holy and righteous and good. Jesus said that nothing's going to pass away from the law until it's all accomplished. It's there for us. You know, in reading some of the Levitical laws while preparing for this message, yes, that was kind of interesting. <laughs> but I went back and looked at something. And I came across something that you might find interesting. This is one that God gave Israel for their health and protection, and it still, a, it still applies to our modern-day life. You know, a lot of homes have mold and mildew problems, and it's a health concern because exposure to that, it affects us in adverse ways. The Bible speaks about this in Leviticus 13, 33 through 48. The original word for mold or mildew is kind of like the word for leprosy. It's bad for you. It, 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 it can get worse if it's not taken care of. Something's got to be done. God wanted his people to live in a mold-free environment. So what does he do? He tells them step by step how to get rid of it. And then he tells them step by step how to protect themselves and protect their health. So they still apply today. So a lesson for you today about that, Leviticus, if you've got mold in your house, don't waste your money going to Lowe's. Just turn to God's word and follow his law in Leviticus 13. See, they still apply to us today. They're still for us because God loves his people. But those are three misconceptions. What's the truth? The truth is that our righteousness comes by faith and faith alone. Now, in general, faith is defined as a complete trust or confidence in someone or something. For us as believers and Christians, this trust or confidence is applied to the person of Jesus and has walked out in our belief, assurance, conviction, and faithfulness to his word. We see this truth in Hebrews 11, 1 and 6. The Bible not only tells us what faith is, it tells us that it's always been that way. Hebrews 11 says, Now faith is the evidence of things not seen, the things hoped for. talks about it, without faith it's impossible to please God. And it talks about all this comes from the people of old. It's always been that way. And the kind of faith I'm talking about is saving faith. Saving faith is not just a faith up here where we know what the Bible says or we, know, we comprehend that. It's the, it's the faith that we place in Jesus alone for our salvation, that we trust in him and his work on the cross for our salvation. See, the people in the Old Testament they put faith in God looking forward to the coming Messiah. And us today, we put our faith in Jesus, but we look back to his finished work on the cross. Ephesians 2 and Galatians 2 
look at these passages and the truth of how we are justified or made right before a holy God. It's by placing our faith in Jesus. For you have been saved by grace through faith. It is not of your own doing. It's not by works. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. The only person we can boast in about our salvation is the Lord. Galatians 2.16 says, Yet we know that a person is not made right before a holy God by the works of the law, but faith in Jesus. We're justified by faith in Christ. That's it. Nothing else. The Westminster Confession of Faith explains that the principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for our justification, our sanctification, and our eternal life. Everything. Everything. See, God does all the work in our salvation from beginning to end. It's not of ourself. Because if, if it is of ourself, then we say, well, I'm going to heaven because of what I did. Does anybody really want to trust in your eternal security within yourself? No. We trust God for that. And what happens is that God, because he loves us so much, he sent his Holy Spirit to the church and he starts to, the Spirit starts to work in our hearts. He's the one that brings the conviction of sin to our, to our hearts. He opens our hearts and makes us realize that we are in need of a Savior and it leads us to repentance, to fall on our knees and cry out to the name of the Lord for forgiveness. The Bible confirms this work of the Spirit in John 6, 44. It says, No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The Holy Spirit is the one who draws us to himself. And right now, he's walking up and down these aisles, and he's moving in here by his Spirit, and he's working on hearts. Because that's what he does. He does that because God loves us. This quote by Martin Luther, he quotes this about his own salvation and how he understood this. He says, I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him, but the Holy Spirit has called me through the gospel, enlightened me by his gift, sanctified and preserved me in true faith. That's what the Spirit does. And after the Spirit works on us, the result is found in Romans 10, 9, and 8. And this is something, this is a good verse for you to memorize. Because the Spirit works enable us to confess and believe and believe and confess. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved for with the heart you believe are justified in the mouth that one confesses and is saved. Now, it's kind of interesting that Paul uses confess with your mouth and believe in your heart in one verse, and in the next verse he changes the order. And the reason for that is this. They are so closely aligned because God's already done a work in a heart. They're kind of like this big coin here. This coin has two sides, but they're inseparable to one another. They're so closely tied that it's still one coin. 
that confession and believing. We're not going to do one without the other. When God works in our heart, that deep inward faith that we have, that belief in our hearts, it leads to that outward confession. And we're not going to confess unless that's in our hearts. You know, in the Greek phrase here, you will be saved, is a definite article. What that means is true. When God says it, it's going to happen. If you do that, the Spirit works in you and you confess and believe it is a done thing. And there's nothing that needs to be added to your salvation. Not tradition, not your works, not trying to keep rules or man-made rules or the laws. Nothing except believing and confessing that Jesus has lordship over our lives, period. Nothing else is needed. That's grace and mercy from the Lord Jesus. I want to close with this verse from where we started in Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. See, this is the truth. This is the knowledge that Paul was trying to show. And it's the same for us today. And it's only through the revealing of the Holy Spirit that my dad understood his salvation near the end of his life and the righteousness of God that's imputed to him. Romans 10, 17 says, Faith cometh through hearing the message and from the word of God. It's the message of the gospel by putting our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus for our salvation. So would you pray with me? Father, we know, Lord, that you have a plan and you have a purpose for our life. Lord, you love us unconditionally. But, Lord, there's a problem that we're sinners. We're in need of a Savior. The Bible says none are righteous. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of that sin is death. That's what we deserve. But Lord, in your great mercy and your love for us, you sent Jesus to die on a cross for us that we might have life and have it abundantly. And Lord, you come and you wash us clean and you give us the righteousness of God imputed to man when we don't deserve it. While we were still sinners, Lord, you see us. And Lord, we're made right with you. We have peace with you through the gospel of Jesus. And Lord, you give us eternal life that we can live and serve you all the days of our life. Not only here, but in heaven, we can worship you. And Lord, this is all you. It's nothing to do with us, God. It's your grace and your mercy. Lord, we don't have to earn it. We can't earn it. Lord, you give it freely. So, Lord, this morning as your spirit is walking among your people, Lord, if, 
If there's anyone here that has never bowed their knee to Jesus, that has never asked him to come into their life, to put their trust in him, to believe and confess on his lordship, Lord, let this be that day. And if that's you, you can pray this prayer out of the meditation of your own heart. Lord, forgive me. I'm a sinner. Lord, wash me clean. Lord, would you come in and take control of my life and lead me into everlasting truth? Lord, thank you, Lord, for your grace. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. Lord, I commit to serve you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.